Well, good morning. Great to see you. I'm not sure I should welcome you to May or January, given this weather. That was a crazy day yesterday, wasn't it? That was just... Yes, I know. Thank you, Jesus. That's right. No, I lived in Fargo nine years. I'm missing something a little bit at this time in January, but we'll take it. Well, my name is George Davis. Thanks. And I am delighted to welcome you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to the book of Genesis, the opening chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. For you... What are the most shocking words in the Bible? What are the most shocking themes in the Bible? You know, periodically I have conversations with people as they're thinking about Christianity and exploring it. And and often at some point we're going to deal with some hard topic in the Bible. And we may have this honest conversation about, well, you know, I'd be willing to talk about Christianity more. But here's this kind of theme that I get stuck with in the Bible. Maybe for you, it can be the issue of miracles. It can be the issue of the resurrection. For many these days, we get stuck in areas of human sexuality and what the Bible says that should look like. Or maybe you get stuck with the whole idea of the unique work of Jesus Christ. When, when Christ says, you know what, I'm the way, the truth, the life. The whole idea of Christ being the exclusive way where we can be reunited with God, maybe that becomes a stumbling block for you. I'm not, I don't know, but I, I think for many people sometimes as they're exploring Christianity or even if they've been following Christ for many years, there can be certain statements in the Bible that are hard to wrestle with, certain things that it's just hard for us to really get our heads around. I don't know what that is for you, but I will say this. In so many ways, I think you can make the case that the the most far-reaching words in the Bible are actually the first 10 words that we read in Genesis chapter 1. Ten words in English, seven words in the original language of Hebrew. And when we open this book, this book that comes right at the beginning of the Bible, this book that introduces the Bible, these are the words we read, these familiar words to many of us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I realize for many, those words are extremely familiar, but do not allow the familiarity to dull the power of the assertion that is being made here. For these words argue, they declare that the starting point of all reality, the starting point of all that we know is God. Now, whether you think in these terms or not, or whether you think about this or not, each of us, in some sense, operates around some type of internal belief system. Scholars sometimes refer to that as a worldview. We we operate, all of us, with certain basic assumptions about life, about what life is about. You know, where did we come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? What does it look like to live well? All of us, we've got some framework that answers those questions. And it's it's an internal belief system that is at work in each and every one of us. Whether you think of yourself as a person of faith or not, the truth is there is some faith belief system working internally. And what the opening words of Genesis challenge us to see is this. Our understanding of life, our understanding of the world we live in, all of that needs to begin with God. 
Now, once again, as I say, each of us has this underlying belief system. And for you, it just may be something you're not really paying attention to. For you, it's just, it just kind of runs in the background of your mind. You're not, you know, you don't really think about certain kinds of deep life questions. You know, you, you just kind of live life and And yet, whether you think about your underlying assumptions or not, whether you've really processed what those underlying assumptions are, if you've really thought about how you are approaching life and how you envision a a life lived well looking like, whether you've really wrestled deeply with those questions or not, what what I want you to engage this morning is the truth claim being made by the author of Genesis. That if everything begins with God, If everything begins with God, that changes everything. If everything begins with God, that changes everything. Over the next few moments, we're just we're gonna talk a little bit about what that looks like. Now, if you're new this morning, um, let me kind of bring you up to speed. We just started this series called Love This Book. Over the weeks beginning last Sunday through Easter, we're working our way through the storyline of the first part of the Old Testament. If you haven't been with us, we've actually got a devotional guide that you can use each week that gets you ready for Sunday and kind of talking you through the passage, working you through the passage that we're going to be looking at. Hopefully many of you have already jumped in. We have these available as you leave. I'll also just remind you in case you're interested that each week as you come, they're they're actually note pages. So if you'd like to bring this and just kind of take notes on what we're talking about, Uh, that could go along with what you're reading in the Bible, I would encourage you to do that as well. Now, if you've been reading in Genesis 1 and 2 over this week with us, what you may have noticed is in the opening chapters of the Bible, in the opening chapters of this book, what we actually have are two different accounts of creation. So we begin in Genesis chapter 1. And one way to think about Genesis 1 is Genesis 1 in, in presenting creation focuses on God's transcendence, his power, his majesty. I mean, it's, it's, it's an overarching picture of creation that, that highlights the grandeur of God. So, for instance, if in Genesis 1, let me, let me just remind you of the first day of creation. Genesis 1, verses 3 and following. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was from, uh, and God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Once again, as we, as we work our way through this week of creation that is presented in Genesis 1, we're struck just by the power, the majesty of God. He speaks things into existence. If you were doing the devotional this week, you, you were asked on, in one question, you know, just to use some words to describe what you were reading. And as I did that, I noticed I was actually putting down words in several different pairs. For instance, I, I was just struck by the fact that as you read this, there is, there's order yet there's creativity. There there is amazing diversity, and yet there's harmony. As you look at these days, this structure of the days in the opening chapter of Genesis, there, there are some recurring patterns. So for instance, in terms of the structure of the days, we will see the 
the announcement and God said, we'll see a command, let there be, and then we'll receive the report that this happened. And then we, in, in several of the days, we see an evaluative statement, evaluation. You know, it was good, it was good, it was good. Once again, notice how this highlights the uniqueness of God. He just speaks and things happen. Also notice the reality that this creation as it is an unfolding is declared to be good. And I think the, the idea of good here is the idea of functioning properly and functioning together. Have you ever known experiences like that? For instance, have you ever had a day you headed off to work and you, every light you hit went green? And then you got to work and it was like everything just fell into place. Have you known a day like that? If you're a student, have you ever known, maybe you just went, you know, you just finished the semester or you remember your college or high school day experiences. You ever have an exam where you went into the exam and you started taking the the exam and you just smiled because as you look down the exam, it's like everything I prepared and studied for is on the test. (laughs) You know, I'm going to nail it. I I mean, it's just all coming together. Maybe for some of you, and I realize that, you know, we talk a lot about family dynamics sometimes, and sometimes Christmas is good, sometimes it's not so good, but maybe if you were with family, there was at least this one moment this last Christmas season where it just felt like everything was just insane. Everything just came together. We, we played games, or there was this meal, we went out to eat, and it was just like everybody was in sync. Do you know those experiences? You ever had a project? It just all comes together. If in any way you know that experience, that is what the author is describing here. As we see the wonder of what God is doing, it's like, it was good, it was good, it was good. It's coming together. It's, it's this amazing symphony of creation that is now playing in tune. And so if you just step back to read this chapter, there's just a sense of wonder and a sense of awe, a sense of majesty as we read these opening statements in the book of Genesis. And even, even as there is structure to the days, there's also structure to this week. So what's fascinating is, in, is, is the author describes creation in terms of days, the first three days. It's, it's like certain, certain structures are formed, and then as you get to the next three, those structures are now filled out. So there's a creation of light and darkness, and then it's filled out with the sun, moon, and stars. There's the creation of the sky and sea, then it's it's filled out with the birds and the fish. There's creation of the land, and it's filled out with animals and plants and ultimately humans. So once again, we, we see this description of the order, the harmony, the creativity, the beauty and all that's going on. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2. And when we get to Genesis chapter 2, it's like now we're going to see creation from a very different angle. We've kind of had this global perspective of God's transcendence. And I think in many ways, what we then see in Genesis chapter 2 is a focus on God's imminence, that is God's relationship, God's interaction with the people that he is creating. So we get to Genesis 2, and now the focus is on the humans that God is creating and on his relationship, his interaction with them, right? So it, it focuses on 
this garden. So we read in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there, were, there was the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we go from this big description that focuses on God's wonder and power and amazement to this zoomed-in picture of God and now interpersonally relating to these humans that he's created. So there's, there's God's transcendence and there's God's eminence. Interestingly, in the original Hebrew, even the words for God change in these two accounts. The word used in chapter 1 is a term that has a, perhaps a greater weight in terms of God's grandeur and Majesty, whereas the term used in chapter 2 is, is a term that term used in, elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to, to God's covenantal relationship with his people as Yahweh. So we're given this amazing picture in the opening chapters of Genesis of God's transcendence and his eminence. Now, this is probably about the time you said, okay, George, I get it, but do you really believe that? You know, and, and, and this is the point where I think we naturally start as we read these chapters at some point to wrestle with the questions of how, right? So how did this really happen? How are we to think about it? How are we to think about it in light of modern science? How do we think about science and the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, maybe you even say, George, how can you even believe anything like this in light of the scientific and technological advances that we now experience? We, we ask all sorts of how questions, and, and I get that, and it's natural for us to do this. But I think this is a place where we have to be careful, and we have to be careful for this reason. We have to be careful because we've got to come back to the truth that this is an ancient text. And what I would say, and this, this may sound like just, well, it's just making an excuse or you're just kind of avoiding the hard questions. It may sound like that. But what I would want you to understand is this. Ultimately, this text wasn't written to answer the how questions that we so frequently ask. Rather, I think this text was written to, to answer questions like who? Who really is behind all that we see every day? in the world around us. And what does that mean? What, what does that mean for life? What does that mean for me? Once again, I, I think we, we focus on the how question sometimes, but really the, the text is trying to get us to wrestle with the who and the what questions. Um, and thinking about this, I think it, it's also helpful to remember that at the time of this ancient text, there were other ancient views of creation in circulation. In the ancient world, a common belief about creation was the idea that, you know, the world came into being as a result of conflict between the gods. The world was kind of just a, it was just a cataclysmic reality of conflict in the supernatural realm. And what we see is a byproduct, perhaps an unintended byproduct of that reality. But notice here the author says no. We don't see multiple gods in Genesis 1 and 2. We see one God. 
We don't see this conflict and confusion and chaos in the divine realm. We see order and intentionality. We see one who has the ability to speak reality into existence. Likewise, according to many ancient uh, treatments of creation, there was a belief, and maybe you could describe it this way, that you know what, you and I humans were just an afterthought. I mean, if the world had been created in this kind of cosmic, unintended conflict between the gods, and somehow humans kind of were, they were just a byproduct, kind of an unintended consequence. Sometimes accidents happen. And here we are. For many, that was their view of creation. And that was their understanding of humanity. But notice Genesis 1 and 2 presents a very different perspective. We aren't just some kind of afterthought or byproduct of consequences or, or conflict. There's an intentionality. In Genesis chapter one, the author slows down when you get to day six because humans were the, were the pinnacle of God's creation. And, and we're, we're told that we are created in God's image and we're intended to reflect him in all of his creation. We'll talk more about what that means next week. Likewise, we get to chapter two and the, then the author, right, he zooms in on the the relationship between God and humanity. And so we see in the, the opening chapters of Genesis that, that you and I were presented as people of purpose and dignity because of the way God has created the world. And so in the opening chapters of Genesis, we're told, look, this is the one who is behind all the world that you see. It answers the who question. And we're told, and here's what this means to you. You're, you're now to be part of something bigger that's going on and you, you have dignity and worth and value and purpose and responsibility because you have been created in his image. You're not just an afterthought. Those are the kinds of questions. Those are the kinds of issues I think the author Genesis is wanting us to wrestle with. So he's... he's we just have to come to grips with. He's not addressing the how question in the way we might like. Now, having said that, I, I don't want to just totally overlook those kinds of questions. So this week, I'm actually going to sit down and record a podcast with Dr. John Harms, who's a member of our church. He also teaches in the biology department at Messiah, so he's a person committed to faith and following Christ. He's also a person well-versed in science. So we're going to talk about how do these two relate and how should we think about these how questions. We'll be recording that this week and make it available as part of the series. By the way, if you've got questions you'd like me to work into that conversation, Uh, Just email me, and if possible, I'll try to work them in. So a few moments ago, kind of what I'm wanting us to see as we come to this passage is the simple truth that if everything begins with God, that changes everything. And let's just now talk a little bit more about what that means for you and me. And maybe you would say, okay, George, you're you're about to lose me uh, because... You know what, I I realize this whole science and faith, creation, evolution, all these questions, I realize they're always circling around, and I realize they've generated a lot of conversation, a lot of questions, a lot of books, but maybe you just say, I'm just not interested in that. 
It just, that doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I mean, you're going to get out of bed tomorrow and you're not thinking about when or where or how the world began. You're thinking about what you got to do at work tomorrow, right? And I get that. But once again, let me come to this truth. If everything begins with God, that changes everything. To talk just a little bit more about that, let me just kind of give you two ways in which I think this passage affects you and me. And here's what I'd like you to see. If God is creator, then we are invited to a life filled with purpose and we are invited to a life filled with worship. If God is creator, here's how everything changes. God is creator. We are invited to a life filled with worship. And we are invited to a life filled with purpose. Now, as you read these opening chapters, there's a dynamic in the text that you and I easily miss. But it's a dynamic that would have been picked up by people in the ancient world. And the dynamic is this. To a person in the ancient world, as they engaged this text, they would often naturally come away with this idea. When they get to this description of the Garden of Eden, it would have been natural and easy for them to say, well, that garden is also a temple. Now, I know your first thought is, what do you mean it's a temple? It's a garden. You you know, you and I, we think about temples and temples in the ancient world and, you know, they're buildings and there's huge columns and, you know, all that is true, but here's, here's what you need to understand. In the ancient world, when you thought temple, it wasn't just about building. What you thought about was this. The temple was the place for God's presence. And there are actually different clues, I think, at work in the text that are linking the Garden of Eden to later descriptions of of temples in the Bible. But more importantly, what you see as you get to the description of the Garden of Eden is you see God kind of engaging. This is the place where God is engaging humans, right? I mean, he's walking in the garden. And, and so in the ancient world, what that would bring to your mind, this is a temple, this is a temple because this is the place God is at. Now fast forward in the biblical storyline and let's just trace this theme out all the way through the Bible very quickly. So as we see, right, we see the Garden of Eden, we see people interacting in the garden with God, and there's this relationship. But of course, as we're going to see very quickly in Genesis, sin and brokenness enters into that garden, and the man, the woman, they're kicked out of God's presence. But God, right, puts a rescue plan in place, and he starts to work through this one family, this one guy, Abram, who we ultimately know is Abraham, and Abraham becomes a great nation, and then we start tracking the history of that nation, the nation of Israel, and early in their nation's history, what do we see? We see a tabernacle, right? Right in the middle of their camp was a tabernacle, and what did the tabernacle represent? That was God's presence. And we go a little farther, and we see in the history of Israel, the tabernacle becomes a temple. And once again, it's, it's, it, 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 it's represented. This is the place where God is among his people. 
And then we go a little farther and we get to the New Testament and we encounter Jesus of Nazareth. And as John the Apostle introduces us to Jesus in John 1, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word he uses there is a word that describes the tabernacle. More literally, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Once again, this is now the presence of God among his people. And so we're confronted with the truth that now God's presence has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, as we follow Jesus' life and as we begin to understand his life and his ministry and his purpose and what he's going to do for us on the cross and through the resurrection, we come to understand that that he is preparing us and inviting us through faith in him to be part of this storyline in such a way that our own lives become the place where God dwells. In fact, in John chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has this amazing statement where he says, if you believe in me, then streams of living water are going to flow through you. And in a real sense, I think that image takes us all the way back to the garden. Because what did we find in the garden? We found a life-giving tree and a life-giving river. And now Jesus is saying, you know, God is bringing about his presence in people's lives in a new way, and I'm going to give you my spirit, and that life-giving presence is now going to be at work in you. And then we get to the end of the biblical storyline, Revelation 21 and 22. And we see the new heavens and the new earth coming down, this new Jerusalem. And once again in it, we see see a life-giving river, and we see a life-giving tree, just like in the garden. But you know what we're told specifically is missing in the new heavens and the new earth? A temple. Why? Because now God will freely and completely be with his people. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's that's the storyline of the Bible that begins right in the very first line of Genesis chapter 1. And what we see throughout history, it's not just God created, you know, God created the world and God created everything in it and you kind of end with that. No, it's deeper than that. Rooted in the very story of creation that finds its final fulfillment in Revelation is the idea, the recognition that God is creating a place and a people for his presence. At the heart of this very storyline is this theme we're going to be talking about as we go through, love this book, the theme, God with us. That's rooted in the very beginning part of Genesis. God is creating a place and a people for his presence. Now, those are some big ideas, but here's where it starts to get practical. When you start to understand this storyline rooted in the very opening chapters of the Bible, then I think you have to come away with a realization that you and I are designed for worship. Right central to this entire storyline is God has created people and he's bringing, he's redeeming people because he wants to be with them and that means we've been invited into a life of worship. We, we're designed for worship. 
And by that, I mean we are designed, we are hardwired to give our ultimate allegiance to something or someone. And the truth is, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, whether you call yourself religious or not, I would argue this is true for you, even as it's true for everyone in this room. We're designed for worship. We're hardwired for that. When I think about this, I I often come back to a quote made by uh, uh, David Foster Wallace, a gifted author. We've referenced this quote before. He was a gifted author at the end of the 20th century, Uh, wasn't a person of faith, a Christian, but he did, interestingly, even though he wasn't a person of faith, he recognized this theme of worship being hardwired into human experience. So in 2004, he delivers this commencement address to a group of college students. It's an address now that has become somewhat famous. And as he's addressing, right, these college students, getting them ready to go out into the adult world, as he called it, this is what he says. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he goes on to say, you kind of got to be careful about what you choose because if you're not careful, what you worship may eat you alive. And although he's not a Christian, not a person who ever expressed faith in Christ or religious commitment, I think he's tapping into a truth that is woven into the very creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2. You and I, we're, we're designed for worship. And I think in, in being designed for worship, this means we're invited into worship really as a way of life. Let me just show you this statement in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. Here's what's fascinating about this. There are two verbs that are used in this statement. It's translated here to work and the second to take care of. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible... When these words are used together, they are typically used in describing the work of priests in the temple or tabernacle. And so what the author of Genesis, in essence, is doing, right, he shows us a garden, but I think he's also saying it's a temple. And he shows us Adam, you know, doing the work and tilling the soil and taking the care of the garden, but he also says, and, and yet he was also a priest. And you're like, whoa, 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 how can you say worship is going on there, right? I mean, there's no music, there's no sermon, blah, blah, blah. That's what I think about when I think of worship. But I think what, what we're being challenged to see is that we are invited to worship as a way of life. And that, that's rooted in the very story. It's rooted in the very heart of creation, So think about it this way. You know, when we close in a few minutes, man, you could just kind of close your Bible, head out. Okay, I'm done with worship. Get up tomorrow, get into work, get into school, whatever you do, retired, whatever. And it's like, you just kind of go along with your week. And I, you know, I just don't think about, quote, worship until next Sunday. And that's just a little compartment in my life. Or on the other hand, you know what? I could get up and as I get up tomorrow, think about my day, get ready for whatever that is in the workplace, in school, whatever that looks like for you. I can get up with just a certain reminder that, you know, if I'm a follower of Christ, my my life's now part of this bigger story. 
And so I, I want to engage the work that I have today in a way that just reflects God's character. And as I go through the day, maybe there are certain things that become points of frustration and difficulty. And, you know, you, those moments you just want to pull your hair out, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe you've got small kids or, you know, complications at work or whatever. But in those moments, instead of just kind of giving totally into the frustration, maybe that just becomes a good time just to remind yourself, you know, oh my goodness, this is, this is a tough day. But I believe in the one who has created the world and is fulfilling his plan and who is reigning in his sovereignty. And what I'm going through is, isn't beyond him in any shape or form. And say, so when I, I begin having moments like that, when I begin looking at my life that way, it's just an act of worship because I'm created in God's image and I've been brought into relationship with him now through Christ if I'm a Christian. then in different ways, I start to see my life differently because I see it as an act of worship. Likewise, I think for us, as we look at this opening st- story of, of how things began, Not only are we invited to a life of worship, I think we're invited to a life of purpose. And and let me just kind of speak personally on this. I don't know about you, but for me, you know, the end of the year, like we've just gone through, it's always a great time to look back. And there are times in my life, maybe sometimes in unhealthy ways, I look back to previous seasons or experiences. I don't know if you do ever do that. And sometimes you look back and there are those moments, if I could only do this one over again, if I could have this conversation, if I could have this decision. There there are those moments we look back with a sense of regret or mistake, or if if only I could have a do-over here. And even as, you know, getting ready for the series and thinking about this theme of creation, I, I was challenged in looking back to realize that Often when I look back and see points I would like to do over, what I discover are places that are either filled with a strong sense of futility or a strong sense of fear. Now let me explain that. Just this is what it looks like for me. Sometimes as I look back on my life, I would say I gave up too quickly on stuff or I avoided taking steps that I shouldn't have taken. In my life, often the regret is not something I did, it's something I failed to do. And often I failed to do it because I really wasn't sure how it would work out. And so too often for me, if I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work out, I just give in to the futility. And closely related to that can be at times a certain sense of fear or a certain level of anxiety that plays in my mind. And, and maybe I hold back because there's certain fears at work and those fears just go over and over and over again. And as I've been kind of wrestling with this text and even, you know, thinking through this series, even thinking about those moments in my life and some, you know, if you want, I could just identify for you in some conversation. But I realize that there can be power in coming back to the story of creation. Because in understanding the wonder of what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2, and now understanding that as a follower of Jesus, I've been brought into this bigger storyline that we just talked about. 
I find it helpful in those moments where maybe I'm kind of giving into futility. You know, it's like, I'm not sure this is going to work. I'm not sure I should even try it. I'm not sure I should even have this conversation. Or what if they don't respond right way? You know, you kind of get stuck there. In those moments, instead of just giving into the futility to say, yes, but, as a follower of Christ, I'm now part of this bigger storyline of what God is doing, and he's going to be faithful. And he's the sovereign creator of the universe. And in light of that, it may not turn out the way I plan. I mean, there's a lot of futility in life. Let's just be honest with it. Just read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And, and yet, even in the midst of that, in light of this bigger storyline, I need to understand that futility never has to be final because of the work the creator God is doing. And likewise, sometimes when those fears take over, I just kind of keep playing them over and over again in the back of my mind instead of just saying, well, stop it, stop it. I think it's important <laughs> to come back to the reality of, but I'm, I'm part of this bigger story. The work of Jesus has brought me into this bigger story of what God is doing. And he's the creator of the universe. And you know what? He sat down on the seventh day of creation. And that's not simply he sat down because I'm tired. It's he sat down to reign over the world he creates. And these, these fears can be all-consuming to me, and yet when I realize I'm part of this bigger story related to the creator God, who is transcendent yet imminent, who has pursued this relationship with me through the work of Jesus Christ, I realize the fears don't have to have the final word. So, even... Even as you start this new week, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, can you see that you're now part of this bigger plan where you're invited even this week to engage your life as an act of worship? And you're invited to engage this week with an understanding that your life has purpose because you're part of this bigger plan. Do you see that? Likewise, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, do you, do you hear the invitation that comes from Jesus himself to accept him as, as the one who will now bring you into this new way of life through his work on your behalf? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if everything begins with God, that really does change everything. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we've looked at this passage, and of course, it, as I said, it raises all sorts of questions. But I pray in the midst of those questions, we would not lose sight of, that what we're be, being confronted with is who you are. The wonder of your transcendence, the reality of your imminence in pursuing us. And in light of that, we're, we're invited to a life filled with worship and a life filled with purpose. Father, I pray that we would hear that clearly. And even as I pray those things, I pray particularly for some of us maybe right now who feel stuck in, in futility or, or stuck in certain fears. I pray we would be stretched to see that the truth of your work as creator God 
can actually cause us to engage those situations differently. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.